Gridbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. Hello, this is international Catholic singer Anna Nuzzo, inviting you to join me and Father Dan Cambra of the Marian Fathers on a select international tour's Divine Mercy pilgrimage to Poland and the Czech Republic. It takes place in September of 2019, and we would love for you to join us. For more information, go to my website, AnnaNuzzo.com. Thank you, and God bless. Welcome to John Allen's The Future Church. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. John Allen's book was written just about 10 years ago, and so it's an interesting book to read to see whether some of his predictions about the church in the 21st century are actually coming true. As I mentioned in the introduction, John Allen outlines 10 different trends which are below the surface of the normal news headlines, trends which are happening all across the globe, which are going to affect the world, the human race, and of course, the Catholic Church. And therefore, as we look at the future church, we'll be looking at these 10 trends chapter by chapter. I'd like to remind you, if you're listening to this podcast, that the abridged version is being broadcast on Breadbox Media and all of the main uh, podcast channels. If you'd like to listen to the full analysis, uh, then I invite you to go over to my blog, DwightLongenecker.com. DwightLongenecker.com is where you can listen to the full analysis chapter by chapter, but also as a donor subscriber, you'll have access to all of my archived podcasts, all of my archived posts, and the other benefits of being a donor subscriber. Some of the other podcasts which are there include Gargoyle Code, my podcast audiobook, but also Triumphs and Tragedies, the 23-part series on church history, which I recorded last year, Characters of the Reformation, my reading of Hilaire Belloc's famous book, and much more. So if you would like to support this work, I invite you to go over to DwightLongenecker.com, be a donor subscriber. There's five different levels of supporting the work and you can help out in that way. I would be grateful. Now let's move forward to chapter one of John Allen's book, The Future Church. In this first chapter, he discusses the first major trend of the church in the 21st century, and that is a world church. He opens up with a vision of the papacy in 2050. Picture a warm Wednesday morning in Rome in the spring of 2050. Pope Victor IV, a Nigerian who took his name in honor of history's first African pope, Victor I, 186-197 AD, is arriving for his weekly general audience in a sun-splashed St. Peter's Square. Though Victor takes pains to stress that he's the shepherd of the universal church, not just a son of Africa, this doesn't stop television networks from supplying a soundtrack of pulsating traditional African music whenever he appears, or flashing images of lively tribal dancers. As the camera zooms in on the Pope, TV commentators, as they invariably do, remark on how his immaculate white vestments set off his beaming black face. 
Most of these pundits have long since given up trying to reconcile Victor's earthly, exuberant personality with his uncompromising stance on hot-button issues such as abortion and gay marriage. After he denounced homosexuality as a perversion and a disease during a major address at the United Nations, many secular commentators in Europe and North America desperately tried to dislike him, but his infectious happiness has made doing so difficult. This simply is not the door moral conservatism they expect from religious leaders. Instead of the gentle papal wave of his predecessors, Victor pumps his fists and cries, Christ is risen, as he exits the Popemobile and makes his way up the steps to the massive square where the canopy stands where he will speak, and if he holds the form, he will crack jokes, perform a few dance steps, and even break into song. Since many Catholics in the audience are part of the Church's vast charismatic movement, they wave their arms in the air in a gesture of spontaneous praise. Journalists are hoping for comment from the Pope on a recent proposal from the Vatican Synod of Bishops to excommunicate Catholic executives responsible for companies that do not pay a living wage. Victor himself, a staunch critic of the inequalities of global capitalism, had issued such a decree when he was the Cardinal Archbishop of Lagos. A handful of Catholic CEOs in Nigeria, including a couple of members of the highly influential Knights of Malta, found themselves turned away from communion. The idea of extending that policy to the Universal Church drew a scathing editorial in the Wall Street Journal. Today, however, the Pope chooses to talk about something else, continuing a series of catechetical talks he began earlier in the year on witchcraft. He assures his listeners that Christus Victor, Christ the Victor, is stronger than the spiritual powers of this world. Even though their power is real and dangerous, Unless this awakened Western stereotypes of a primitive African superstition, the Pope engaged in a brief theological tour de force, citing authorities from Justin Martyr and St. Gregory of Nyssa through St. Thomas Aquinas, grounding his teaching in the classic Catholic tradition. As he finishes the audience, Victor descends to the first row of pilgrims, where, as he does each Wednesday, he performs brief prayers of exorcism for visitors who have reported episodes of demonic possession. And as he exits the square, cries of Viva il Papa rise up from a welter of tongues, including dozens of indigenous tribal languages from Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Well, that's a vivid description of John's vision of what might happen in 2050, halfway through the 21st century. John goes on to point out that the root of Christianity was, of course, in the Roman Empire and in Western civilization, and that therefore Christianity is very often thought of as a Western and North American phenomenon. But of course, in the 17th century and on through the 18th and 19th, Christianity was transplanted around the world through the colonial powers. And it is in the 20th century that it really began to grow enormously in the developing world. It's in the 21st century that this phenomenon will come to fruition and we will see a truly world church. John points out uh, a few statistics and just listen to these. At the beginning of the 20th century, just 25% of the world's Catholic population lived outside Europe and North America. By the century's end, that's the end of the 20th century, 65.5% of the Catholic population was found in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Consider the conclave in 2005, which elected Pope Benedict. At that point, there was 19 votes cast by Italian cardinals, equivalent to the total number of Africa and Asian cardinals combined, despite the fact that even then there were just 55 million Catholics in Italy, 
compared to 237 million in Africa and Asia. Already the numbers are overwhelming at the beginning of the 21st century, and they will continue to do so. The theologian Karl Rahner, very influential at the Second Vatican Council, recognized that this leap of a change in world Christianity had happened uh, even in the 1960s and 1970s. In 1979, he wrote, A frontier has been crossed behind which it will never again be possible to return, even to the slightest degree. He could see that world Christianity was about to burst onto the scene, and Catholicism uh, would be at the forefront of that. So what's actually happening? What's happening is that the growth of the Catholic Church is enormous in the developing world. The center of gravity shifted from the north to the south in the 20th century. And in our day and age, in the 21st century, we are going to see it totally swamp uh, and overwhelm the world. In other words, uh, Catholicism will cease to be seen only as a North American and European phenomenon. It will be a global phenomenon. According to the invaluable work, Global Catholicism, Portrait of a World Church, Allen quotes that in 1900, at the dawn of the 20th century, there were roughly 266.5 million Catholics in the world, of whom over 200 million were in Europe and North America, and just 66 million were scattered across the rest of the planet. By 2000, by way of contrast, there were slightly under 1.1 billion Roman Catholics in the world, of whom just 350 million were Europeans and North Americans. The overwhelming majority, a staggering 720 million people, lived in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. Almost half the Catholic total, over 400 million people, lived in Latin America alone. And projecting forward to the year 2025, only one Catholic in five in the world will be a non-Hispanic Caucasian from Europe or North America. John Allen goes on in his book to quote more detailed statistics about the demographic growth of the Catholics in the South. And by the way, I would recommend that you get this book. It's still available on Amazon. It's available online. I'm only giving an overview of all of the wonderful statistics and details that John packs into his book. Listen to some more of the statistics about the growth in the Southern Church. Africa offers the most striking illustration of what's happened in the last hundred years. During the 20th century, the Catholic population of sub-Saharan Africa went from 1.9 million to more than 130 million, a staggering growth rate of 6,708%, and vocations are booming. Bigard Memorial Seminary in southeastern Nigeria, with an enrollment over, of over 1,100 seminarians, is the largest Catholic seminary in the world, and its student population by itself is roughly one-fifth the total number of seminarians in the United States. Asia, too, saw impressive Catholic growth. Catholicism started the century as 1.2% of the Asian population, and it ended the century at 3%, meaning that the church grew more than doubled its market share. It's the same in India and elsewhere around the developing world. Allen then goes through and he discusses the causes of this phenomenal growth. And the causes are, first of all, population growth. In other words, where there's more people, there's going to be more Catholics. And the population growth in the developing world has continued to boom, while in the Western world, when I say the West, Western Europe, North America, and Canada, of course, our natural population is in decline. The fertility rates are dropping. 
The second cause for this growth is that the church has shifted to local control. In other words, the missionary powers from the from Europe and North America have pretty much pulled out and the church is under local control. Therefore, it's bound to grow because its own people are now moving into the generations of leadership. Local circumstances have helped it to grow. There have been certain pressures uh, that have helped the church to grow in Asia, Africa, and across this southern world. The fourth element to the growth is absorbing indigenous culture. In other words, uh, as the church has grown and the Western influences of the missionaries have pulled out, also with the increased flexibility which has been permitted by the teaching of the Second Vatican Council, the local church has been able to adapt to indigenous cultures much more readily, and this has meant an increased popularity and increased accessibility for many more people to the Catholic faith. What does this Southern Catholic Church look like? What does this hugely developing church actually look like? What are the characteristics? John Allen then goes through and points out a profile of Southern Catholicism. What does Southern Catholicism look like? He has six particular characteristics, and this, I think, is the most interesting part of this first chapter of his book. What does this Catholicism look like? And therefore, what will the church of the 21st century look like if this Catholicism prevails? Well, first of all, it is morally conservative and politically liberal. We're used to, in the United States, conservative Catholics being uh, having a conservative view of sexual morality and the family, but also that's very often wedded with the Republican Party and conservative capitalistic viewpoints on economics and on the military around the world. Meantime, there are the liberal Catholics who tend to have a more Democratic Party view of peace and justice issues, but also being quite liberal on the sexual morality issues and the family issues. In the Southern Church, you find a combination, which I believe is truly Catholic, of being more open to the socio-political viewpoint of the Democrats, of helping the poor and looking after the needy and being against war and being for peace and justice and so forth, but also at the same time being conservative in their sexual sexual ethics and, and their sexual morality and their emphasis on the family. So... We see this in an outspoken statement of Cardinal Francis Arinze in 2003. Uh, He delivered the commencement address at Georgetown University, and he waded into America's culture wars, declaring, in many parts of the world, the family is under siege. Arinze says, it is opposed by an anti-life mentality as seen in contraception, abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia. It is scorned and banalized by pornography, desecrated by fornication and adultery, mocked by homosexuality, sabotaged by irregular unions, and cut in two by divorce. Well, Arinzi, the African Cardinal's apparent comparison of homosexuality to pornography and other social ills prompted a letter of protest and raised a great big fuss in America. But he's speaking for the church in the South. In Asia and Latin America, Allen points out, similar attitudes prevail. According to the 2006 Pew study, 72% of Indians, 78% of South Koreans, and 56% of Filipinos believe that homosexuality is never justified. Even in sexually liberal Brazil, a strong 49% of the population agrees that homosexuality is never justified. 
Therefore, we will see that the church in the South takes a strong stance of traditional morality, but at the same time, they're likely to be skeptical of capitalism and globalization, wary about global influence of the United States. They will tend to be pro-Palestinian and skeptical of Israel. They'll be anti-war in favor of a robust role uh, for the state in the economy, uh, and they'll be very interested in favoring green issues. The second trait of the Southern Church is, this is amazing, the second trait is that, of course, uh, the church in the South is very uh, concerned with miracles, healing, and the supernatural. An Anglican theologian, John Mabiti, writes, For African peoples, this is a religious universe. The invisible world presses hard upon the visible. One speaks to the other. An African see that the invisible universe that they understand and believe in can be seen visibly in the tangible world. In other words, the Southern Church is believing in the supernatural. Statistics from the 2006 Pew study illustrate the point. 29% of Americans report that they have witnessed divine healings, but 56% of Guatemalans, 71% of Kenyans, 62% of Nigerians, and 44% of Indians claim to have done so. Just 11% of Americans claim to have experienced or witnessed exorcisms, but 34% of Brazilians, 38% of Guatemalans, 61% of Kenyans, 57% of Nigerians, and 28% of Filipinos say they have had those kind of experiences. Allen says, given this appetite for the supernatural, one source of pastoral concern is an overabundance of folk religion in which Christianity is being mixed up too much with the ancient religions of witchcraft and the superstition that goes with it. A third characteristic of this Southern Church is pluralism, not secularism. In other words, uh, there are plenty of rivals to Catholicism uh, in the developing world. Not only Islam, but Pentecostalism, fundamentalism, American evangelicalism, uh, individuals making up churches of their own, which is a mishmash blend of traditional tribal religions and Christianity, other various sects of Mormonism and Seventh-day Adventism and Jehovah's Witnesses. All of them are out there, and all of them are competing for audiences, and therefore those influences are going to influence the development of the Catholic Church Another characteristic of the Southern Church is problems of growth, not decline. In 2005, John Allen asked the Archbishop of Nairobi in Kenya what their greatest challenges were. He said, we have so many vocations. The infrastructure of Kenyan Catholicism is finding it difficult to cope with all those who are coming forward for the priesthood. And Africa is not alone. Even while Pentecostals eat away at a once strong Catholic population in Honduras, the National Seminary had an enrollment of 120 in 2007, an all-time high for a country where the total number of priests is slightly more than 400. And so all across the Southern Church, the problem is not a problem of decline, but how to manage growth. The fifth characteristic is they have a strong political role. They don't just sit back. If their country is being controlled by a tyrant or a dictator or there's abuse or injustice, the Catholics in the Southern Hemisphere are used to standing up. Like the Polish Catholic Church standing up to communism, they also stand up to other leaders who are dictators. Here's an example. In the early 1990s, Malawi was still under the eccentric rule of its dictator for life, Hastings Kamuzu Banda. But it's the Catholic leaders who stood up against him. A similar thing played out in Zimbabwe against Robert Mugabe. 
The bishops in these countries managed to get involved with the media and to stand up against the tyrannical forces. The sixth and final characteristic of this southern church that John lays out is its youth and optimism. He says it's youthful and optimistic, not just demographically, but also culturally. For example, 43% of the population of sub-Saharan Africa is under 14 years old. He says that ratio is certainly reflected in the church. In fact, the first thing that strikes a Western visitor to the typical African parish is the enormous number of children. Quite often, kids are literally hanging from the rafters, and it can be difficult to determine sometimes if you're at a Catholic mass or a daycare center. Also, the church in the global south is young historically. In other words, it has not got 2,000 years of European history. Instead, the history is only a couple of hundred years old. Having been transplanted culturally and theologically from the West, they still uh, do not have a long long history of their own. Therefore, it's youthful and energetic and optimistic because it's young. Therefore, we go on to ask what all of this means. In other words, what does it look like in the church today? Uh, And what are John's projections for the future? At this point, the abridged version of the podcast concludes. And if you'd like to continue to listen to the full analysis that John Allen has, I invite you to go over to my blog, DwightLongenecker.com. Donor subscribers can listen to the other half uh, and also tune in to the full analysis week by week. That's DwightLongenecker.com. Thank you for listening to the abridged version. I invite you to be a podcast level donor subscriber. That's the lowest level. And you can unsubscribe at any time. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com.